Okay, well, we're going to continue our study of the Sermon on the Mount, and we're up to Matthew 5.29. Let's just uh, start with a word of prayer. Lord God, our Heavenly Father, we pray that you in your love and grace will guide each of us as we seek to follow the example of your dear Son and as we seek to follow his teaching. Father, we believe that your Son was the word that he taught made flesh, and we do pray that we might perceive that and that we might see in his teaching him and that we in our weakness might follow him. We pray for your specific strength that you will spiritually strengthen each of us to be spiritually minded and to walk as he walked. Father, please bless Father what we put our hands to, to be his followers and to have him as Lord and Master in our lives. For his sake. Amen. Okay, well, Yes, uh, last week when we finished off uh, our study, we were up to 28. And I'll just uh, repeat uh, what we said there. I sent you that whoever looks on a woman to lust after her has committed adultery with her already in her heart. And the whole theme of the Sermon on the Mount is that the Lord is elevating everything to a spiritual, if you like, a, a psychological level. And He's emphasizing that the real sin of every act of adultery began with a, a mental attitude. And I emphasize the force, as I see it, of the word already. And there's plenty of New Testament examples of, of why we should not uh, follow the lust of our eyes. And there's plenty of specific teaching about not fantasizing, etc., but I suggested that I don't actually think that that is what he has in mind here. He's saying that every act of adultery already occurred before it physically happened in the heart of people. And it's in that context of eyes, uh, lusting, etc., looking, that he continues in verse 29. If your right eye offends you, pluck it out and cast it from you. For it's profitable for you that one of your members should perish, and not that your whole body should be cast into hell, or Gehenna. And the Greek words translated pluck out and cast out are the same. So when he says pluck out or cast out your right eye if it makes you stumble, this is the same word as your whole body shall be cast or thrown out or plucked out, cast out into, into condemnation. So what is he saying? He's saying that you should condemn those parts of your lives which are sinful and leading you into sin. That's the idea of casting out the eye that offends, so that your whole body is not cast out into condemnation. And he's used the term uh, already here in Matthew 5, uh, verse 25, lest you be cast into prison. This is... Uh, a metaphor for condemnation, and verse 13, salt that loses its saltiness shall be cast out and trodden under foot of men. And this, again, is the language of condemnation. And in fact, the idea of cast out is very common in the teaching of the Lord Jesus, just in Matthew alone. Matthew 3, verse 10, and within the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7, verse 19, that the, the tree that brings forth not good fruit is cast into the fire. Uh, Matthew 13, 42 and 50, Matthew 18, verse 30, and uh, other places in the Gospels. So casting out is definitely, without question, associated with condemnation. 
And so he's saying, you should condemn yourself for your behavior. When you fail, recognize that what you did leads to, deserves, condemnation at the last day. And this opens up in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and the account of the, the breaking of bread there into Paul saying, if we would judge or condemn ourselves, we will not be judged or condemned. He doesn't mean you can get out of appearing at the day of judgment. He means that if you would only condemn yourselves, and he speaks in the context of self-examination at the breaking of bread, then you will not be condemned. So flesh and sin have to be condemned one way or the other. And I think his point is, do it to yourself now, so that you shall not be condemned at the last day. Rather than justifying yourself now, not thinking too seriously about it, and then having to be condemned, your whole body, your whole life, cast into, into Gehenna, into condemnation. And so this process of self-examination and self-condemnation, recognizing that, that that sin does warrant condemnation, he's saying that that is, that is a fairly fundamental part of life in him. So that your whole body perish not. And he uses the same word in Matthew 10, 28. God is able to destroy or make to perish the body in, in Gehenna, in this metaphor, as, as we know, of, uh, of condemnation. Now he talks about the right eye, and then in verse 30, if your right hand offend you, why the right hand and the right eye, not the left one? Well, the right hand was a Hebrew idiom for the power, the thinking, the dominant desire of a person. And he's saying if that's all going the wrong way, then you've got to condemn that and realize that. And this fits in to a theme that we've already touched on and which we will develop further as we go through the sermon, that it is the dominant desire of a man. What your right hand will do, what your right eye sees, that is what, more than anything else, God is interested in. And all these metaphors that he's using about salt that either has saltiness or it's fake salt, uh, the city that's set on a hill that cannot be hid, the house that's either built on rock or sand, in all these metaphors, and there's many of them, good fruit must come from a good tree and so forth, they all imply that we can only, we can only be one way or the other before God. It's not as if we, we drift into relationship, into fellowship with him, and then there's a whoopsie and we're out again and so forth. No, we are either fundamentally in Christ, the right eye, the right hand, the dominant desire, the general direction of your heart is either with him or not with him, and that's it. Now, I'm not minimizing individual experiences uh, of failure and episodes of, of failure and bad thinking and action and words, but uh, what I'm saying is that the overall thrust of the Sermon on the Mount is that we are either in one dominant desire or not. You're either good tree, bad tree, uh, and so forth. Now, this idea of having the, the eye cut out or hands and feet cut off, these were the very punishments that were meted out in Palestine for sexual misbehavior. And the whole thing with sexual misbehavior is that it's made a public thing of, it's a shameful thing, etc., etc. And I think the Lord is saying that 
actually in any area of human life, if you fail, then you are no better. And okay, you may avoid having your hand cut off or whatever and being shamed publicly, but do it to yourself. Just because you, you know, obeyed the 11th commandment, thou shalt not get busted, does not mean that ultimately you are okay with God. I think that's a very powerful point that, that he's making there. Now, the idea of cutting off various limbs of the body so that somebody might enter the kingdom, I think that that is very much recalling the, the idea of, of a priest, because who cut off uh, parts of a body in, in God's service? It was the, the priests cutting up the animals into their parts. And this is yet another uh, hint from the Lord that you, secular, non-religious, not very righteous Jews that he's talking to, the disciples, that you are to be the new priesthood, that you are not to look at all the institutions of, of Judaism, of your religion, etc., and think, well, yeah, that's for the holy ones. He's already said that, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God, which is only what Moses did. And he's saying, you can be Moses. And he's saying, blessed are the peacemakers. And we saw that that actually was what the priests were called. They were given the covenant of peace. And he's saying, you are the priesthood. You are the city set on a hill, which was obviously Jerusalem, that cannot be hid. That's you. All the symbols of your faith, all those ideas that you think are so far and high above you and are all for more righteous people, and there you are, hungering and thirsting for righteousness, wanting to be more righteous, but not really getting it. No, no, you are the ones whom I am going to use to do my work. And you are to be the new priesthood. So he goes on then in the 31, it has been said, whosoever shall put away his wife, let him give her a writing of divorcement. But I say unto you that whoever shall put away his wife, saving for the cause of fornication, causes her to commit adultery. And whosoever shall marry her that is divorced commits adultery. We touched on this last time, and I'll just uh, repeat uh, what I said, that traditionally this has been interpreted as Jesus commenting on the argument that there was going on in first century Israel uh, between the school of Hillel and the school of Shammai. And the Hillel school were really saying that you could divorce a woman for any reason, as long as you gave her the, the bill of divorce. So she burns the dinner, you simply don't like her, well, just uh, write, a, write a, a bill of divorce, give it to her for any reason. And the Shammai school was saying, no, 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 only for adultery. I think it's missing the point of the Sermon on the Mount to say that, yeah, well, Jesus is actually siding with one of them. He's siding with, with uh, uh, this uh, Shammai, that he's against Hillel, no, no, no. This is, uh, I don't think, at all the spirit of it. The spirit of the Sermon on the Mount is that always he's taking these issues, whatever the issue is, an argument about divorce, the, the, the flowers of the field, anything, and he's elevating it to a higher and more spiritual level. So, on first blush it would seem that he's taking the side of those who were saying, no, no, only for fornication only for some sexual uncleanness can you divorce. But as I say, that would be missing the whole point of the nature of the Sermon on the Mount. 
of elevating all things to a more spiritual level. And so I suggest that the key word in 32 is the word translated the cause of fornication. I say to you that whoever should put away his wife, saving for the cause of fornication or some form of sexual uncleanness. This is the Greek word logos, which as you may know, refers to the underlying reason, to the purpose, to the, the thought that is underneath the word or the action. So he's saying that it's the, the logos of fornication, the intention, the thought, the desire to do this, which is what causes marriages to break up, which is what leads to divorce. So on one level, yes, he is veering a bit towards um, the, the school of uh, uh, Shammai, and he's saying that, uh, yeah, for fornication, for sexual uncleanness, and not for just any old reason, but he's elevating that. He's saying that when this happens, it is for the logos, for the underlying cause of fornication. And that interpretation seamlessly, seamlessly fits in with what he has just been saying in the context. Back in 28, whoever looks on a woman to lust after her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And I said that already there implies to me that he's not talking about lustful looking, although that is uh, such fantasy, as it were, is condemned by implication in other parts of the Bible. But what I'm saying is that he's, he's saying that uh, every act of adultery begins already, was already committed in the hearts, in the minds of people. And then when he goes on to address this argument that was going on about what's the reason you can divorce, he says, look here, the logos, the cause, the logos, the, the thought of fornication is what leads to divorce. So that fits seamlessly into the context there. But notice, of course, he, he does say, verse 32, that in this case, a man can cause his wife to commit adultery. Now, just as an outline uh, principle, let's just remember that we can cause other people to sin. And that is, I think, the sinfulness of sin, that sin leads other people into sin. And you may say, ah, yeah, but I got these sins that I do that actually is just between me and God. And God kind of understands. But actually, no. Actually, no. Actually, if it's really a sin, not just your conscience malfunctioning, uh, actually every sin, even what you might reckon, look, this doesn't hurt anyone else. Well, actually it does. Just think that through. In any sin that you tend to think is just between you and God, actually it does. It does influence others. And I would say that well, it has an effect upon others. And that, as I say, is the sinfulness of sin. You may say that Adam and Eve thought that, yeah, well, if we uh, just eat the fruit, well, so be it. Yeah, okay, so we messed up. But, you know, everything went wrong for the, the billions of people who came after them, etc., now, whosoever shall marry her that is divorced commits adultery. Now, that is difficult, and uh, I suggest that you, you have a, 
uh, look, if you're worried about this verse in my uh, my notes on, on Matthew 5, um, well, go to hista.org and, and you'll find all, all the material. Um, I think that, to sum up what, what I say there in my, in my notes, I think here that he's actually talking about the woman. And if a woman just divorces a man for any reason, then the person who marries her is... Uh, is committing adultery. And that's typical, actually, of how the Lord reasons so often, that he'll give a, a parable that's relevant to, to men, two men shall be working the field, one shall be taken, the other left, and then he balances it for women. Two women shall be grinding at the mill, one shall be taken, the other left. And I think it's the same here. He's talking in the first part of the verse, I suggest, about men, divorcing their wives for no good reason or for the, the cause, the intention of uh, fornication or whatever. And then he, uh, Jesus then takes it to the woman as well and says, look here, because women could divorce in upper class society in the first century. And he's saying, look, look if a woman does this for no, no good reason, she also is causing the guy that she goes off with to commit adultery. But as I say, leaving aside the ins and outs of exposition here for one moment, the general principle, I think, is clear that we can lead others into sin. 33. Again, you've heard that it's been said by them of old time, and we just pause there to remind ourselves of a point we made before, that it has been said that Jesus says to the, the educated Pharisees, do you not know that it is written? But here he's talking really to illiterate people. The thrust of his message was to the poorest of the poor, the illiterate. And if you and I are not the poorest of the poor, we have to realize that in terms of uh, statistical terms, we are unusual. We are unusual because Christianity is designed for the poorest of the poor. And if you're not like that, then we have to be like that in spirit. And that's why he starts the whole thing in the Sermon on the Mount by saying, blessed are the poor in spirit. Anyway, you've heard that it has been said by them of old time, you shall not forswear yourself, but shall perform unto the Lord your oaths. What does it mean to, to forswear? It means to commit perjury. And what is perjury? Well, it's lying about something in court. Now, perjury differs from lying in that it has a motive. I'm talking about the meaning of the word. So, for example, if you lie about your age in a casual way, so you're having a haircut and it comes up about how old you are, and you, you uh, say that you're five years younger than you are, or five years older than you are, if that tickles your, tickles your ego, um, well, okay, that's got no... That, that's not perjury, that's a, a lie. Um, but if you, for example, lie about your age in order to get old age retirement benefits, say I'm going to get a certain benefit when I'm 65, and I'm only 60, but I shall say I'm 65, and you say that in a legal sense to get your retirement benefits, that is perjury. Okay, because you've lied uh, in order to specifically, before a court, uh, to get some benefit. Now, we see then the theme of motive being continued. But I think that what comes out in the next few verses is that Jesus is attacking the idea that there are little lies and big lies 
and the idea that there are two types of speech. There's the very formal stuff where I have to be absolutely honest because I don't want to commit perjury because I'm in court, so I better speak the truth about my age or whatever. And then people think, yeah, and then there's sort of life. And he's saying, no, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Don't go in for this difference between swearing on oath, like, I promise you I'm telling the truth, implying that, well, in this case I'm telling you the truth, and I swear on Jerusalem, I swear on a Bible, I swear by heaven or whatever, and, uh, well, ordinary life. Well, yes, that's just ordinary life, and yeah, we tell lies and we exaggerate and so forth. And I think when he says, don't swear by the earth, verse 35, for it's God's footstool, nor by heaven, 34, it's God's throne, and even not by one hair, verse 36, you can't make one hair on your head, uh, white or black. I think what he's saying is that nothing, be it God's throne, be it the whole earth, be it the smallest thing, one hair on your head, nothing, not the smallest, from one hair on your head to the biggest, God's throne, nothing, nothing at all, can change your words. Nothing at all can add any truthfulness to your words. So he's saying, don't look at language and honesty um, in kind of a dual sort of way, as if, well, yes, of course, in front of a court, I will tell the truth, but life, well, yeah, you know, uh, I will swear by oath that I'm telling you the truth. I, I swear on the Bible that I'm telling you the truth. He's saying, why do you want to do that? You don't need to do that. You shouldn't do that. Because all your communication should be absolutely truthful. Now, that is quite a challenge, actually. It's sad that these verses have been misread as simply meaning that if you have to be a witness in court, you say, I'm not going to swear on the Bible. But they actually run right through daily life, every hour, every minute. That we should be absolutely truthful and not make that difference between, oh, well, of course, in this context, I promise you I'm telling you the truth. And the rest of life is just life. And words have little meaning. No. He's saying that all through your life it should be as if you're swearing on the Bible, as if you're swearing by, by heaven. But he's saying... None of that can make the slightest bit of difference to the truth of your words. And of course, truthfulness begins in the heart, in the mind. And we all spend a certain amount of our subconscious thought in fantasy, imagining a situation, imagining this, imagining that, how we would speak, how we would respond. And what the Lord is saying is, in all that even, be truthful, because the thought is the, the father or the mother of the, of the word. 37, let your communication be yes, yes, no, no, because whatever is more than these comes of evil. Now, again, for communication, it's the Greek word logos, which we just saw back there in 32, saving for the cause, the logos of fornication. So you're up again against this, Absolute um, 
uh, emphasis by the Lord upon motive and upon the state of the heart. That is where his teaching here is so radical, that it is a new psychology. And he's saying that, let your logos, let your internal thought be, yes, yes, no, no. So, as I said, having spoken about the need for absolute truthfulness in words, he then goes straight on to talk about the mind, the logos. Well, of course, because, as I said, the, the words that we speak are a function of our thought. So he says that your logos, your internal thinking, your intention, must be yes, yes, no, no, in other words, absolute truthfulness, because whatever is more than these comes of the evil one. So wrong words and wrong thinking come of, Greek ek, out of, the evil one. And yet we know that, in the end, human words come out of the heart. So he's personifying the human heart as the evil one. And that would confirm the, the view that, that we have, as explained many times, that the devil and Satan, the great adversary, is sometimes, not always, used in the Bible with reference to this evil one, this massive personification that's going on in the Bible of the human heart. That is the source of your logos, your communication, as the AV says, uh, your logos, your intention, and ultimately your words. 38. You have heard that it has been said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you that you resist not evil. Well, when Jesus was speaking, the law of Moses was still in force. It was in force until he died. And he doesn't ever really say, um, well, when I'm dead and when the law is taken out of the way, this is how you should behave. He's speaking to people who are under the law of Moses. And he's saying, he quotes an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, which is out of the law of Moses, talking specifically about if you damage a pregnant woman uh, so that her child is born deformed, etc., then you shall suffer uh, accordingly. Um, of course, that had been misquoted and misinterpreted as it is today, that if you do something bad to me, I shall do it to you. But I say unto you that you resist not evil. So he is entertaining the idea, he's teaching the idea, that even under the law of Moses, they could attain to a higher level, and that they didn't have to be absolutely, literalistically obedient uh, to, let's say, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but go to a higher level and resist not evil. And that is actually seen and taught within the structure of the law of Moses itself. That's why the same action uh, has a number of different consequences within the same law of Moses. Uh, fornication or uh, adultery, let's say, was a typical one. You could put her through the Numbers 5 trial of jealousy. You could burn her, you know, get her killed, get her executed. You could divorce her. There's three options. And then in the book of Hosea, and uh, I suppose it's sort of axiomatic really, but there's a, you see another option. That's quite simply to do what God did when his partner committed adultery, Israel, forgive. So there's at least 
four different options there for the same situation. So there are levels of obedience. And that was even taught within the law of Moses. And that is the same, I think, even more so within the, the new covenant. And so one law fits all. I mean, this is foolish. And particularly, uh, it's been a, a tendency of many, many churches, many ecclesias, many groups to, to come up with some, some kind of ruling about matters relating to divorce and remarriage and other forms of personal failure. And this seems to me to be absolutely ridiculous because that is not at all how, how God deals with, with personal failure. There is a range of response and there even was under the law of Moses. It's uh, a mistake. In fact, it's ignorance, basically, of the actual text of the law of Moses to think that it was all simply a case of there is this defined uh, judgment in this case, and then in that case there's another judgment, and that's it, and it just has to be followed. That was not the spirit of the law. The more you read it, the more you understand that. And so Jesus is saying that even though you're under, in a sense, eye for an eye, I'd say to you something else. Go to the higher level, or to another level. And he says, resist not evil. Well, this term for resisting uh, evil occurs only one other time in the New Testament, and it's in Ephesians 6, verse 13. And I've said that the writings of Paul, uh, and particularly of James, uh, are full of allusion back to the Sermon on the Mount, because this was the key, crucial document for every true Christian in the first century. He says in Ephesians 6.13 that you will withstand, the AV says, you will resist in the evil day, and you will stand in that day. So he's saying that in the evil day, in the final day, you will resist. You will resist evil in the last day, but not in this life. That, I think, is the point. And yet, James, who I've said, uh, talks about, or alludes to the Sermon on the Mount continually. He, in chapter 4, verse 7, talks about resisting the devil. So that is where the resistance comes in, resisting the great Satan, the great adversary, which Jesus has just alluded to in 37, the evil one, which is the logos, the, the source of your own misbehavior and bad words. That is what should be resisted. So it's very common these days in, in so-called Christianity for there to be a, quite a, a trend towards uh, actively resisting evil through political protest and, and so forth. And yet uh, the teaching of Jesus here is absolutely different. Resist not evil. This, I would say, is the ultimate verse that underpins our case as conscientious objectors to military service. Resist not evil. We shall do so at the last day, Ephesians 6.13, but not in this life. In fact, Romans 13.2 may have an allusion here when we're told to not resist the governments that God has put in power. And I would say that is absolutely uh, the idea, do not resist evil. But he does go on to explain that we are not to be simply passive. We are to do something. What does he say? 
39, whoever shall smite you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. I don't think that he means that literally. And I have said, and we said in our opening prayer, and I have alluded to this a number of times, that the Sermon on the Mount was fulfilled perfectly by Jesus. It is actually his own self-explanation that he was the Word made flesh. He fulfilled all this, absolutely. And he was struck, he was smitten on the, on the cheek when he was at his trial. And what did he do? He did not literally offer the other cheek. But I think his idea is that if you behave like that, <clears throat> then you do symbolically offer the other cheek. You open yourself up for yet further abuse. You actually are the one calling the shots and not the person that's beating you. In a literal sense, if you were to offer the other cheek, it depends on the context, um, you may not actually get a thump on the other cheek. Now, to be struck on the right cheek was a Semitic, that is a Middle Eastern, a Jewish, Arab uh, insult to a heretic. And I think what he's saying is, don't resist that. Don't, as it were, um, keep on trying to defend yourself. I've seen this happen so many times with, with generally quite good brethren. They're falsely accused of something, and the rest of their life is a whole campaign of self-justification. I've been through that myself. Just get on with your service of God. And those who have slandered you, those who have accused you of being a heretic, those who have smitten you on the right cheek, of course they have to face judgment for that, but uh, they are really left looking stupid by you getting on with life instead of resisting them. And that carries on in verse 40. If anyone will sue you at the law and take away your coat, let him have your cloak also. Now, people in the Middle East had a, a coat, uh, like a jacket, and an undergarment, a cloak. And beneath that, there was nothing. So here I think he's saying that if someone takes away your coat, say, you want to take away my, my undergarment as well? You want me to stand in front of you absolutely naked? Here you are, take it. Please take it off me. You just took my jacket off me? Well, take this off me, and I shall stand here naked and unashamed before you. And they is the guy, is the thief, or whoever's conning you, or whatever. Are they going to do that? No. And you have got the upper hand in that theft, or that robbery, or mugging, or whatever it is. Whoever shall compel you to go a mile, go with him too. Well, Roman soldiers were allowed to compel uh, a citizen to carry their their bags for one mile. But there was pretty severe uh, punishment for them if they forced the guy to carry it two miles. So it's as if this soldier comes up and says, hey you, carry my heavy bag for a mile. And you carry it for a mile and you say, yeah, I'm going to carry it in second mile. What's the guy going to say? Oh, no, 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 no. Don't do that. You end the whole thing calling the shots. You end actually the winner in all this. 
This is the power of non-violent resistance to evil. Violent or proactive resistance to evil loses the whole point. You are as bad as the aggressor. Now, I said that Jesus is talking within the context of the law of, of Moses. Now, under the law of Moses, it was forbidden to keep a man's outer garment, his, uh, what is called here, his coat overnight. And the reference is Exodus 22, 26 and 27. Now, I think Jesus has that in mind. Of course he did. He knew God's word perfectly. And I think what he's saying is, instead of just quoting a Bible verse saying, uh-uh, you're doing that, but that's not biblical, so I'm not going to let you do it, or resisting, okay, okay, the guy's wrong. But in the end, you will be the one who ends up with the upper hand. So he's saying, take things to a higher level. Don't just use God's word to uphold your own rights. Don't always enforce what biblical rights you have against your brother. Because I have said that the Sermon on the Mount was given to the disciples. It was given in any case within the context of Israel as God's people. It is talking about behavior, bad behavior against you within the context of God's people. And so he's saying don't rush to your own defense and your own justification even if you have scripture on your side. Live on the level of true love and non-resistance to evil. Then when he, he says, if any man will sue you at the law, verse 40, well, that's an incredibly bad translation because the Greek word underlying sue at law is kalino, which is the word everywhere translated to judge. It's not specifically God in mind suing ad law. That is an assumption and a guess from translators. If any man will judge you, if any man has an issue with you, if any man starts up at you and takes away your coat, in other words, he acts to you unbiblically, breaks Exodus 22 about not keeping the guy's overcoat overnight, well, do not resist. But shame him, let him have your under, uh, undergarment also. Say, so you want me to stand here, Aristarchus, in front of you? I shall not be ashamed of my own nakedness. It's you, obviously, buddy, that's going to be ashamed of my nakedness. I have nothing to hide, I have nothing to be ashamed of. And really, as I say, you see here uh, truth, which, if only it were followed, would end all divisions and upsets and whatever between brethren. We are not called to endlessly go around correcting others' misjudgments of us. Something I've had to learn in my life, and I'm pleased that I learnt it. You simply take the higher level of non-resistance of evil, and believe me, even in this world, you're the one who has the, the last laugh on those people who have abused you within the brotherhood, who have done wrong to you, have judged you, condemned you, or whatever. Okay, you in the end, if you will go this way, and it is very difficult, uh, but if you will go this way, you are the one who stands there with your integrity absolutely intact. And it is they who are ashamed to say, oh no, it's okay, don't take off your undergarment, I don't need that. 
well, I made you carry my bags a mile, and you're trying to run away with them to, to carry them for two miles. Hey, come back. No, 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 no. Let me take that bag off you. It's very powerful stuff. So he goes on in, in 42, Give to him that asks you, and from him that would borrow of you, and the, um, the Greek word does really mean to borrow on interest, do not turn away. Again, we're up against a difficult, uh, difficult verse here, aren't we? I lived nearly all my adult life in poor, in the poorer world, and every day almost I have been asked for money, for help, for this, that, and the other. And you simply can't do it. You just simply can't practically do it. And furthermore, it's not even wise to do it because you end up. You know, funding people's uh, misbehavior, alcoholism, drug abuse, and so forth. Um, what does the Lord mean here? Well, he was talking in the first century context, as I've said, to the illiterate, to the dirt poor. And when you literally have virtually nothing, you just have a little bit of excess now and again. You work, you buy your food, get your food, not maybe buy it, but you get your food, and then you get up the next day and do, do, do the same thing, and occasionally there might be a little bit left over. And you grow your crops, and then, well, you might have a, a good bit of time of harvest, and you've got to eke it out till the next harvest, etc. You would have, those people would have no savings at all. They would have nothing behind them. And that little bit of extra that you had to give that away at the end of the day was not actually a huge sacrifice. It was more of an emotional, psychological sacrifice that I have got a bit of extra bread today, but I've given it away. Well, you want it from me because you didn't work very hard today. Yeah, yeah. Uh, this is why when there was any kind of famine, I mean, people went under just as they do in the poorer world today, they went under very, very quickly. There was no safety net. Difficulty with us is that we live in a society where we are not living hand to mouth. And life is not quite like this, is it? Uh, we are living within a totally unprecedented, different structure. But I think the, the spirit of it comes through that don't immediately have a no attitude or what you come to me for. You could put a lot of emphasis on this word borrow, meaning to borrow for interest, because actually they weren't supposed to do that under the law of Moses. And I think the Lord is saying, well, don't turn them away. Don't turn them away. If somebody comes to you saying, look, I, I want to borrow something on interest, I, uh, I, I really need it. Uh, typically it would be, oh, please can I borrow your plough and I'll, uh, I'll give you something for it uh, uh, bit by bit over the next uh, few months or whatever. He's saying, look, try to be yes people when you meet other people's need. That, I think, in outline terms is how I would take that. But as I say, he is implying that he is addressing himself to the very poorest of the poor. And 43, you've heard that it has been said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. 
Well, that was not said in the law of Moses. Who said that? Well, this is actually a quote by the Lord Jesus from the Essenes in their rule of the community. The Essenes were a group of very uh, ascetic, hard-line Jews who lived uh, out in the, the wilderness near where John the Baptist was baptizing. And the suggestion has been made that John the Baptist was involved with the Essenes because he was in the same geographical area and a lot of what he says is very hard hard-hitting and ascetic and has the, the spirit, really, of, of the Essenes. Well, he's quoting this from the Essenes, and he's saying that, uh, from out of their rule of the community, and he's saying that, no, this isn't right. But actually, within the Sermon on the Mount, he also does allude to other parts of their teaching and commends it. He, for example, talks about the blessedness of the poor and the poor in spirit. And they are terms he's taking right out of the Essenes, that blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the poor, etc. When he praises in Matthew 19, those who are eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake, this is a phrase again out of the Essenes uh, documents. And so I think that the Lord here is showing us how we should deal with those who differ. He's bridge building. He's taking out of the Essenes that which is positive and saying, yes, thumbs up, I agree with that. And then he is later taking <clears throat> a specific uh, thing that they have said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, and saying that that is completely wrong. So this is, I think, the way to go in, in bridge building, that we are to, to look at our, our audience and seek to find that which is common. And as I say, the Lord did this with, uh, with the Essenes. So, uh, 44, But I say to you, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. <clears throat> Now, praying for our enemies and our abusers and not wishing a curse upon them, this is very much the language of Job. He prayed for his enemies and his uh, abusers, etc. <clears throat> and he says in Job 31 verse 30 that he didn't allow himself to sin by uh, wishing uh, a curse upon them, but rather a blessing. And we'll see later on that the Lord has Job in mind quite a bit. Now, blessing, when he says bless people, blessing in the New Testament and in the Old Testament has a lot of connections with forgiveness. That he might bless you, at the end of Acts 3, in turning away every one of you from his iniquities. So I don't think that the Lord is simply saying, oh yeah, if you get beat up by somebody, then uh, pray for them because it's kind of good for you, and forgive them because it's, uh, it's good for you. Uh, it's uh, the only way out if you get beat up by someone is to forgive them I mean that's true but I don't think that's actually what he has in view here although at first blush that is maybe what it seems when he says bless them and pray for them bless as I said forgive do good and pray for them I think he means pray to God that they might be forgiven now I've said at the start of our, our studies here that 
the Sermon on the Mount was addressed initially to the disciples. That's, it was the disciples that went up into the mountain to hear him, and the whole thing is addressed, I think, to those who would be in the community of faith. So I think then that this, uh, the, the cursing and the hating, despitefully using you, persecuting you, and you pray to God that he forgives those people, I think that this is particularly uh, relevant to life within the uh, community. But as I have said, uh, of believers, but as I have said, the Lord Jesus was really the word of the Sermon on the Mount made flesh. The Sermon on the Mount is him. It is his self-explanation. Because time and again, in what he says here, he himself lives it out. So how did he live this out? How did he bless or forgive those who cursed him and prayed for them? Well, this surely is lived out by him on the cross, in his forgiveness of the thieves, of those who crucified him, etc. So bearing in mind what he's later going to say in chapter 7, verse 1, that those who condemn you shall be condemned. If you condemn, you shall be condemned. He's saying, look, these people who are treating you like this are going to be condemned. So even though they are impenitent, pray for them that they might be forgiven. Because cursing always has a sense in the Hebrew mind of condemnation at the last day. And so he's saying, pray for forgiveness for those who curse you, who wish you to be condemned, who condemn you. And so I would say then that we can influence the eternal destiny of others. But you may say, but how then can some fellow get forgiven because I prayed for him? Doesn't he have to repent himself? Well, not according to what the Lord is saying here, because he says, pray and bless, get blessing for those who curse you. Get forgiveness for those who condemn you. And in Mark 2 verse 5, you've got the, uh, the paralyzed man and when you know, they, the, his four friends let him down through the roof, etc., and the Lord says, when he sees him, he, he says, your sins are forgiven you. And yet the comment in Mark 2, verse 5, is that when Jesus saw the faith of the friends, he said, son, your sins are forgiven you. So that young man, that paralyzed man, was forgiven because of the faith of his friends. That's what Mark 2, verse 5 says. And this whole idea here about praying for the forgiveness of others who, who curse you, abuse you, and persecute you, I mean, surely the Lord has in mind here Moses' prayer for Pharaoh. If you want the record, it's Exodus 9, 28, and 29. I don't think that, you know, that the plagues came, Pharaoh said, Oi, Moses, get rid of that plague, can you? And he prays to God, says, Oh, God, just take it away, can you? No. There's far more fervency and passion in Moses' prayer than that. And I think that he actually was seeking, and God was also seeking, the forgiveness of Pharaoh and Pharaoh's ultimate reconciliation with God. Now, as it happened, it didn't work out. But that was the intention. Now, again, that shows the possibility of forgiveness of a third party for the sake of of your prayers. And particularly in this context, he's saying, pray for those who condemn you, who curse you. Now, if you've been 
a serious Christian, an active Christian for any serious amount of time, and you've been involved in church life, you will sooner or later encounter or have encountered those who condemn you, those who persecute you. And the Greek word there is elsewhere used about excommunication, literally to chase you out. You will sooner or later encounter those exclusive attitudes. And I keep saying that the Lord is in the first instance addressing all this to the community of believers. It is the blueprint for life in church, if you like, amongst believers. And so he's saying that we must urgently pray for those people. And this opens a whole new dimension. When you encounter that kind of uh, chasing out, that excommunication, that rejection, uh, that judgmentalism towards you, wow, you've got work to do, which is to pray for those people that they might be forgiven and that they might not be condemned because what they have done leads to their condemnation. That's what the Sermon on the Mount teaches. But you can save them out of that. And straight away, you become a very important person in their life. Although they don't realize that, but in the bigger picture of you and that person who's given you a hard time and God in heaven, you become the key. Because, you see what I'm saying? They cursed you, they condemned you, they persecuted you, they excommunicated you, they chased you out, and they're going to get condemned for that as God looks down upon them with, with sorrow. But that is according to the Lord's principle. That's what's going to happen. But you, you can change that. Because you can pray for them. So you see, it's like the guy who says, you carry my bag one mile. At the end of one mile, you're carrying on walking with it. He's like, oh, sorry mate, can't come back. No, no, no. no. I'll I take the bag back. You are putting them. You, you are greater than them. This is where the Sermon on the Mount empowers us so, so amazingly. You are empowered above them. Because actually the issues of eternity, of eternal, eternal life in God's kingdom, for that person who has been mean to you, depend upon you. That's how God's arranged it in his wisdom. And that makes you suddenly elevated. I don't mean you know, pride or anything, but you suddenly have a crucially important position before God. And yet so many people don't see that. And like, oh, well, I'm not a believer anymore. Oh, I left because do you know what he said to me? Do you know what they did to me? Do you know how she spoke to me? You know, I, I absolutely don't doubt how they say, how you say they spoke to you, etc. Don't doubt it. But do you realize that? You have been set up then as their savior. And to just walk away from it, you know, God must think, ah, oh, hang, you know, the guy didn't get it. How, how tragic, how sad. Despitefully use you, the AV says in 44. I mean, that is slander. That's the idea of the Greek. Um, curse, hate, slander, persecute, or excommunicate you. These terms, I suggest, are primarily relevant to life within the community of believers. Let's go on. So that 45, so that you may be the children of your father. Well, in the sort of parallel in Luke 6.35, that you might be children of the Most High. So I think that the Lord said both. The higher critics would love to say, ah, oh, yeah, well, he, you know, that they were just remembering. Luke reckoned that he said children of the Most High, and Matthew reckons he said children of your father. Uh, yeah, they all got it wrong. 
No, I don't believe that. All those apparent contradictions, I believe you can put together in every case and think that, yes, Jesus actually said, what did he actually say? Uh, he said both of those things. So I think what he said was, uh, so that you might be children of the Most High, which, yeah, was a, a, a term well understood in Judaism, the children of Abba, of your Abba, of your daddy. You know this word Abba uh, is seen as a, as a shock to many people, that Jesus could talk about God as Abba, as daddy, as Papa. So he's juxtaposing, he's putting together the two ideas, the children of the Most High, you might be the children of the Most High, the children of your daddy. You see the, the, the two ideas coming together there. Then he, he goes on, um, because he, God, makes his son to rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Well, I would say that that indicates that this world is not just part of a perpetual motion machine, but that God is willfully and consciously active in every rising of the sun and the rain is not part of a water cycle. The water cycle is just a, an observation by human beings and what apparently goes on. But God actually sends rain on the just and on the unjust. The Psalms are full of that, Psalm 104. He waters the hills. He causes the grass to grow. He makes darkness. The young lions seek their meat from God. He sends forth his spirit. And the plants are created. It's not just an endless cycle. That's just God's wound it up and clockwork and, and kind of left it. He is actively involved. And uh, all you have to do then to, to see the, the huge activity of God is to open your eyes and look around you. Well, 46 then, if you love them which love you, what reward have you? Now, we tend to love in response to others' love. You know, why do grandkids think that their grandparents are the most wonderful people in the world? Because they love them. And because they give them prezies and all the rest of it. And yet the love that the Lord is trying to inculcate is not that kind of love. It is a tragedy that this little word is so misunderstood that we are to love those who do not love you. And if we only love those who love us, he says, don't the publicans do the same? And who are the publicans? The publicans, as you, I guess, know, uh, were totally unpopular. Zacchaeus, he was one of them. They were the most friendless people in society because everyone was against them because they were betrayers, they were thieves, etc. Everyone hated them. And the only person who they could relate to and, quote, love or get any love or kindness from was another publican. And so the Lord is saying, if you only love those who love you, you're no better than those publicans whom you despise, those friendless people in society who are so obnoxious that it's only equally obnoxious people who will, quote, love them. So he says, by implication, if you do love those who don't love you, you will get a reward. And the idea is of wages. But salvation itself is a free gift. We all get the same. A penny a day, no matter how hard you work. And yet that is not to say that human works are irrelevant. And the fact he uses this word for wages or reward, I mean, this is very common in 
in the New Testament. The preacher receives wages for what he did, John 4.36. The laborers receive their hire, their wages. Um, this is a, a major theme, and, and you have it in Revelation, where there is to be a judgment, where two books are open. The book of life, you're either in that or you're out of it, and the other book, uh, according to your deeds. And we are judged according to our works and given a reward for our labor. Uh, we're told that um, 1 Corinthians 3, verse 8. So then, what does this mean? It's not that the harder you work, the better your chance of getting salvation, that you're given that by grace. But the nature of your eternity, the nature of how you spend your endless years, your en the endlessness of eternity, it depends upon how you live now. And to love those that do not love you will have its reward, will have its wages. Let's just uh, jump ahead now out of 48. Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. Well, of course, the Lord knew that that was an impossible uh, ask, that we cannot be as perfect as him, as God. And he started the Sermon on the Mount by saying, this is good news for the poor in spirit, for the spiritually poor. This is good news for those who thirst after righteousness, for those who love to be more righteous than they are. So he's saying, look, this is good news for you guys who are not very spiritual, but who want to be. And then he says, right, you've got to be as perfect as God. And of course, he knew that we were all going to have our jaw dropping, thinking, oh, no, I can't do that. He sets us up for that. And this is to drive us. It's to drive us to the belief that Paul expresses in so many words in Romans of imputed righteousness. How can you be perfect even as God is perfect. How? <laughs> no other way than by having that counted to you. Now there is a natural break here in the sermon, in terms of its structure, at the end of chapter 5, and I think this is his summing up. He's given us some, as we've, we've shown, some very demanding things here, and he's saying that at the end of it, he's giving us, I think, a bit of hope. Because with all these challenges about our eyes and our thoughts and our hearts and this total dedication, etc., we can tend to think, well, it's beyond me. And he knows that. And so he says, right, now be perfect. And I almost believe he said this with a smile, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. Because he's the, the psychologist extraordinaire, is he not? And he's saying, as I said, yes, I've given you all this. I started off by saying this is good news for the not very spiritual, for the mixed up, for the secular, non-religious, etc. It's all wonderful. And then he gives all these very high, high demands. And then with a smile he says, and be perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. And I believe he said it with a smile. Um, because it drives us to believe that if he so loves me, he will count me as perfect. And that's the whole issue in, in Romans. And I said that Paul is always alluding to the sermon, and he does to this bit as well. And it's in 2 Corinthians 13, 11, where he twisted slightly uh, in the way he quotes it in the Greek, where he says, uh, what is here literally is, be you therefore perfect, 
he says, be perfected. Be perfected. As if he's saying, yep, be perfect as God is perfect, but you're on the road to it because God is at work in your life to bring you to that position where he sees you as his beloved son. Thank you.